It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 194 for May 30th, 2010. Recorded May 28th. Microsoft Word has been the world's primary word processor program for a long time. Word 2007, released a few years ago, was revolutionary. Word 2010, released this year, is not. It is evolutionary. The most significant change for power users is the ability to modify the ribbon, but security features and the ability to recover a document you neglected to save are also pretty welcome improvements. Word's developers continue to push the application down the path of being a publishing program. About that, I'm not so happy. Before I tell you about the great new features, there should be a warning first. There are challenges in an office divided. Many of Word 2010's new features don't translate well if someone who's using Word 2007 or Word 2003 needs to open the document. In Word 2007, some of Word 2010's advanced features will be invisible. Some will be converted back to Word 2007 status. Some will be lost. In 2003, it's even worse. Most of the advanced features will simply be discarded. What this means is that a 2010 document edited in one of the earlier versions of Word will return to the originator with dynamic features that have been converted to static features or with features that are gone. The Options panel allows you to turn off most of Word 2010's new features, but if you've paid for the upgrade, why would you do that? You won't lose any text, but if the originator has made heavy use of Word 2010's new capabilities, that person is going to be sorely disappointed when the document comes back with many of those features ripped out. In an office with mixed versions of Word, one option is to run Word in compatibility mode, but then you can't use the new features. A better option would be to upgrade all users to the current version at the same time. The disadvantage there, of course, is cost. Word and the entire Microsoft Office suite have taken a large step toward security. If you attempt to open a Word document that you've received as an email attachment or otherwise obtained from the Internet, or if the document you're attempting to open contains macros, Word will warn you about the potential for unsafe content. Now, that part isn't new. That feature was added in the 2007 version. But unlike with Word 2007, in Word 2010, you're able to read the document even without opening it. All the macros are disabled, and that way you can review the document and confirm that it's safe, not just have to guess whether it's safe or not. This security feature can be disabled. But I wouldn't recommend doing that. Disabling the security feature might save you a few seconds every week, but at what risk? Access users will recognize the Trust Center and the Trusted Locations panel. That's been added to Word, and you can now tell Word which locations you consider to be safe. In other words, documents stored in these specific locations will always be considered safe and will always open without a warning. The ribbon was new in Word 2007, and I liked what Microsoft did with the ribbon, with one exception. Users couldn't modify the ribbon. 
Well, the ribbon continues in 2010, but now you can modify the ribbon's contents. Microsoft thought that their quick access component in 2007 applications would be sufficient. Power users quickly told them they were wrong. As a result, the ribbon is now something that can be configured by the user. You can add any of the hundreds of commands that are not on any ribbon component, or you can add your own macros to existing or new tabs on the ribbon. If you take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, you'll see that to illustrate the process, I created a new tab called My Commands on the ribbon, and I set up two new groups within the tab, Document and Text. Then I added several commands to each of the groups. The commands I added aren't necessarily commands I would use, but at least they illustrate how easy it is to modify the user interface. What used to be called the file menu, or in 2007 the screen that opened if you clicked the orb, is now called Backstage. This is an area that power users will instinctively gravitate to. The ability to pin documents to the file menu has been enhanced to allow pinning directories or other file locations, FTP sites, for example. While this might seem to be a minor feature, it makes accessing obscure locations fast and easy. It's really very welcome. This is also where you can view information about the document you're currently editing, and set properties that control who has access to the document and what they can do with it. Styles are certainly not new to worry. They've been around since the days of DOS, but some people still don't use them. Instead of creating a subhead style, for example, they individually hand-code each and every subhead in the document to be, for example, Fruitager Bold, 14 points with 6 points of space before and 3 points after. What happens, though, when you decide, or someone decides for you, that the subheads really shouldn't be Fruitager, they should be Futura, they shouldn't be Bold, they should be Ultra Bold, they shouldn't be 14 points, but 16, they shouldn't have 6 points of space before, but 12, and that 3 points of space after, oh, that's okay, leave that. If you have a document that has 751 subheads, you'll spend the next day or two making 751 changes. If instead you used styles, you'd spend about 30 seconds making one change that will then apply to 751 paragraphs. Starting with Office 2010, more reasons exist to use styles. The navigation window provides an overview of the document and a quick way to move from where you are in the document to where you need to be. But it works only if you've used styles. And Microsoft has fixed another long-standing complaint about Word. It used to be if you used the word count feature, the count word got and the count you got, if you counted manually, would be different. Word 2003 and Word 2007 didn't always count all the words in a document. Word 2010 offers the option of counting all the text in the base document, that you'd expect. It also will count, if you ask it to, all of the text in text boxes and in footnotes and endnotes. It still doesn't count the text in headers and footers, and I think that's the correct decision, because if you're counting words, for example, you're editing a document and your editing is going to be based on the number of words in the document, you're probably not going to edit the headers and footers. Well, maybe once. After that, they stay the same throughout the document, so you don't want to count those. I created a small document, and the count, as you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, was exactly right on. If you use your own macros, or if you've purchased commercial macros, they may not work with the 2010 versions of the Office applications. 
It's not uncommon for code that works properly in one version of Visual Basic for applications to fail in other versions, either older or newer. In some cases, minor application changes within the same version of a program will cause VBA macros to break. So be sure to check with the provider of your macros to ensure that a new version will be available for Office 2010 and what the cost of upgrading will be. On the other hand, if you use templates provided by third parties, you should find that they still work, even if embedded macros don't. The documents based on older templates will probably create what's called a compatibility mode document, essentially a document that's styled as if it were done in Word 2007, but in most cases you'll be able to resolve that by simply saving the template in Word 2010 format. I mentioned that Microsoft continues to push Word down the design path. I still resist using a word processor as a design program. But I do have to admit that Word 2010 will be more than adequate for basic publishing and design. I don't consider Word to be a reasonable stand-in for an application such as InDesign or even Microsoft Publisher. But I do understand the desire of some managers to turn secretaries into publication designers. Word 2010 offers a wide variety of functions that will appeal to people who are forced into design roles without the benefit of any design training. Unfortunately, Word also makes it very easy to create some abominable designs. But in the hands of a sensitive person, even if that person has no design training, Word 2010 might be an adequate design tool. Word now fully supports OpenType, which means ligatures and improved kerning are supported if those features are built into the typeface. Ligatures are combinations of two or more letters into a single component, also called a glyph. One of the more common ligatures is the combination of the characters F and I. Kerning is the characteristic that allows letters to fit together properly on a typeset line. A given typeface can have up to 20 stylistic sets embedded, Gabriola is a typeface that's included with Office 2010 and Windows 7. It includes good kerning tables, ligatures, and seven stylistic sets. Make sure you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website and you'll see how those seven stylistic sets work. These features are all useful, and in the hands of somebody who understands typography, they are welcome additions. But Word 2010 also makes hideous options available. With very little effort or thought, it's possible to create a headline with a gradient fill, a reflection effect, and an unearthly glow. Reminds me of the days when desktop typesetting first came along and people designed desktop ransom notes. Bottom line for Microsoft Word, the world's best word processor, is even better for cats. Although Word 2010 does make it easy to create truly horrible designs, The application earns four cats for its improved security, the ability to modify the ribbon, thank you, and a wealth of other features. And I haven't even mentioned the collaboration tools. They are quite impressive. For more information, you can visit the Microsoft Word website. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Several years ago, when I was doing considerably more scanning than I do today, I bought an Epson Perfection 3200 photo scanner. Epson made drivers for Vista and even for Windows 7, 32-bit. There are no drivers for the 64-bit version of Windows 7. Although I don't use the scanner a lot these days, I still do need to use it from time to time, so I had a choice. 
I could buy another scanner that would be the equivalent of the Perfection 3200, figure 800 to $1,000, or I could purchase and install Ed Hamrick's ViewScan, about $40. Easy decision. The only problem is that I wish I'd bought ViewScan several years ago. If you know nothing about scanners, this is a good program to guide you. And if you know a lot about scanners, you'll love the program's extensive control set. So either way, you win. ViewScan is, in some ways, kind of an odd product. It is something that venture capitalists probably wouldn't want to bet on for one big reason. Every scanner comes with its own software. So why would somebody want to spend another $40 to $90 to buy third-party software? The answer is easy. ViewScan works better than the software that came with your scanner, even if that software still works with your current hardware or operating system. Hamrick says that he's always been interested in photography, and when he purchased an HP PhotoSmart film scanner in 1997, he was disappointed by the software that came with it, so he wrote his own program. Then he bought a Nikon LS30, reworked his program, which was called ViewSmart at the time, so that it would support multiple scanners, and he renamed it ViewScan. You might be able to find a list somewhere of scanners that ViewScan supports, but don't bother looking. It would be a very long list, and the scanner you have is probably on that list. It would be easier to list the half dozen or so scanners on the planet that ViewScan doesn't support. By the way, that's a guess. The number might not be that high. According to the ViewScan website, more than 1,500 scanner models are supported. If your scanner is made by any of the big companies, ViewScan will probably run it. Big companies? Acer Bank, Agfa, Apple, Avision, Braun Phototechnic, Brother, Canon, Dell, Epson, Fujitsu, Heidelberg, Hewlett-Packard, Kodak, Lacey, Lexmark, MediaX, Microtech, Minolta, Mitsubishi, MuseTech, Nikon, OKI, Pacific Image Electronics, PlusTech, Polaroid, Reflecta, Samsung, SmartDisk, Umax, Visioneer, and Xerox. That enough? When it comes to competitors, there's really only one, and that is the very expensive Silverfast. Silverfast requires the manufacturer's driver, so it wouldn't work for me, even though I own a copy of it for the Epson Perfection 3200 photo scanner. If I buy another scanner, I would need to buy a new copy of Silverfast, because Silverfast is designed for each individual scanner. Or I could just use my existing copy of ViewScan. ViewScan runs on Windows 95, 98, ME, NT, 2000, XP, Vista, and Windows 7, both 32- and 64-bit versions, as well as on Linux and the Mac OS X. Maybe you're beginning to see the advantages here. I bought the $40 standard version instead of the $80 professional version, but I may need to upgrade to the higher-priced Pro program. The standard version doesn't allow the user to profile the scanner, something that's essential if you really want to obtain the best possible scans from your hardware. Maybe you're wondering about the interface. Well, it's functional. It's not pretty. If you turn all the advanced features on, it can be a bit overwhelming. But functional really is a good thing. If you've used a scanner for any high-quality work, you'll probably understand the controls right away. If you haven't, you have two options. First, you could just let the program guide you, and it does a very good job of guiding you. Or you could read the 91-page user guide provided as a PDF with the application download. In fact, even if you consider yourself a scanner virtuoso, it wouldn't hurt to read that user guide. 
ViewScan's dialog window is on the left side of the screen. The preview and scan window is on the right side. You'll see status information near the bottom of the screen. To use the program's advanced features, you'll deal with a total of six tabs, input, crop, filter, color, output, and preferences. By default, the basic interface is displayed, and each pane has an advanced button that reveals all the neat stuff. Although ViewScan offers some options for image correction, my recommendation would be to tread very lightly here. Get the basic scan right, but don't spend a lot of time trying to fix colors and the like during the scan process. Save a large, high-resolution TIFF image, or if you buy the professional version, save a camera raw image, and then do all of the restoration and modification in Photoshop. Bottom line for ViewScan, if you have a scanner, you need ViewScan. Five cats. In a perfect world, every scanner manufacturer would simply stop trying to create good scanner applications and would bundle Ed Hamrick's ViewScan with their hardware. Since they don't, it's up to you to put the bundled software on a shelf with other useless junk and buy ViewScan. Because the $90 Pro version includes all future upgrades, you'll never have to buy it again. For more information, visit the ViewScan website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. There it was, amidst the offers for generic Viagra, a message from iTunes thanking me for purchasing a gift certificate. That's something I've done, but not recently, so I knew it was a fake. I thought I'd take a look, though, because fakes that try to plant malware on your computer continue to get better. The message showed up in my spam arrest list of messages from sources that haven't been verified. Had the message really come from iTunes, it wouldn't have been there. The real iTunes address is on my verified list, so the message would have come directly to me without passing through the quarantine area. I opened the message in spam arrest and noticed immediately two dead giveaways that this isn't a message I want to believe. First, the recipient is listed as Borexi at spamarrest.com. That is not my address. And the message contains a compressed zip file, which is not how iTunes sends gift certificates. Have you ever wondered why the bad guys send zip files? They do this because it allows them to avoid some anti-fraud measures that are unable to see inside compressed files. Well, I continued. I looked at the message source, and I found even more reasons to delete the message. It originated in Greece. The last time I checked, iTunes was part of Apple, which is located in Cupertino, California. The message was also passed through a server in Belgium on its way to the United States. As I mentioned before, the recipient of the message is Borexi at SpamArrest.com. This is not me. And nobody uses their SpamArrest address to receive legitimate messages. And one final point, the message failed the sender policy framework test because iTunes doesn't send messages from the IP address 193.108.160.248, which is assigned to the Hellenic Open University in Greece. Still, the fakes continue to get better, so that means we need to get smarter. Before you click, it's even more important to think. In Short Circuits, this week I was talking to the owner of a company that provides a service to some fairly large businesses. I needed to send my contact some information, so I asked for his email address. Not serious about business at AOL.com, he said. Well, all right, he didn't really say that not serious about business part. He actually gave me his screen name. But he might as well have said not serious about business. If you expect people to take you and your business seriously, to believe you're really in business... 
you won't use an AOL address, a Yahoo address, a Hotmail address, or a Gmail address for business. All of these are okay for personal addresses, but not for business addresses. And Actually, I don't consider them to be all that good for personal email either. So why do you need a business email address? Well, you don't use your home phone number for the business, do you, even if the business is located in your home? You probably have a website. You may even have a fax number. At one time, having a fax number was essential. That's no longer the case. And you probably have business cards, letterhead, and all the other things that businesses are expected to have. So why continue to use an email address that says so many negative things about your business? For most people, it's not the cost of having a good email address. It's just inertia and resistance to change. For about $40 a year, you can register a domain name and have all the email addresses you could ever want. When I write to a computer industry contact, my message comes from techbiter.com. If I write to a client, my message comes from blin.com. Registering a domain costs, in most cases, 10 to $15 per year. If you don't need a website, you can add email addresses for just a few dollars. And if you already have a website, your service provider probably includes email addresses without additional charge. So if you're serious about your business, make sure that you have an address that supports your claim. I've been on vacation this week with a co-worker and her husband. Not exactly in the car with them as they travel through the West, but watching very closely. Every night they post the day's pictures on their website. How we use photography has changed so much in the past 20 years or so. Remember Photomat? You can find their drive through kiosks and shopping center parking lots all over the place. For a while, the company was listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and at one time there were more than 4,000 photo mats distributed throughout the U.S. That was in the 1980s. Then came one-hour processing and eventually digital photography. The company offered one-day photo development. That became obsolete when drugstores and others started installing those one-hour photo development systems. And what about Kodak? Kodak was the film company. In the past 15 to 20 years, it has tried to position itself as the picture company. This has been largely unsuccessful. Few people have prints made these days because they can share photos online or via email. For somebody like me who spent a lot of years producing a lot of images on film, this has been a bit of a shock. But the ability to create an image, modify it on the computer, and share it immediately with people all around the world certainly has its advantages. Oh, and incidentally, Friday was a vacation day for me, so I spent some time at the zoo. After several decades, the zoo again has polar bears. Last year's baby elephant is now a toddler, and several lion cubs were playing the way kittens like to play. Yes, I do have pictures. Yes, there is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Regardless of how cool it is, I don't own an iPad, and I don't plan to own one any time in the near future. But a lot of people do own them, and the market for add-on hardware is hot right now. I've seen keyboards, stands, and other accessories designed for the iPad. One that looks pretty interesting is the recliner by Lapworks. You'll see a picture of it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I've previously described other products developed by Lapworks, including the company's devices that turn a notebook computer into a device that can actually be used on your lap without setting your clothes on fire. 
The LapWorks iPad recliner can be thought of as an easy chair for the iPad. It improves the viewing angle and can also elevate the iPad a bit so that the screen is easier to see. The image you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website includes the recliner, an iPad, and an optional keyboard. It looks like a little baby computer. If you'd like more information, you can visit the LapWorks website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And speaking of Apple, do you remember when we thought Apple would fail? I was one of the people who, during the darkest days of the company's history, thought that Apple would go out of business. At one point, I think I gave them another year. Well, then came OS X, the iPod, iTunes, and all the other stuff. And this week, something remarkable happened. Apple's value exceeded that of Microsoft. Based on the value of the company's stock, Apple became the world's most valuable tech company on Wednesday. Apple's market capitalization ended the day at $222 billion, $244.11 per share. Microsoft's market capitalization was $219 billion, $25.01 per share. In January, Microsoft's value had exceeded Apple's by $80 billion. $80 billion. In Redmond, this change cannot be seen as a good trend. And as for me... I guess I just have to eat my words. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.